Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that, Elizabeth. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Darian. I'm an elder here at the church. And uh, Eric Kapoor, our, our regular preaching pastor, he's away this morning uh, preaching in San Diego. And uh, this morning, I'm excited that we get to talk about Jude. Um, perhaps it's a small letter in the New Testament that you haven't heard much about in the past. But uh, this uh, Sunday morning, of course, I'm uh, preaching from Jude. And next week, uh, the next two weeks, Eric Kapoor, again, he'll be back. And he'll be preaching on Philemon. So this is the series we're calling the Forgotten Letters of the New Testament or something like that. Um, but anyway, I'm excited to be talking about Jude together with you this morning. So w when I was young, I loved roller coasters. Uh, our local amusement park, I grew up outside of Kansas City, our local amusement park, I was always the first one to ride the fastest, the tallest, the one that takes you upside down and backwards kind of roller coaster. It was, it was my favorite thing. I was fearless. Even, even the one that goes round and round and round and then the floor drops out, that was a favorite until I lost my wallet under it, but that's beside the point. I loved roller coasters. But later, as I got older, uh, in fact, just a few years ago, uh, my wife Nicole and I, we, we thought we would have a fun free day. We, I, I think it's actually Lori and Isaac who were watching our kids one day, and Nicole and I decided to go to Knott's Berry Farm for the day. So we got up, had a nice big breakfast, and started riding roller coasters. And uh, after the first roller coaster ride, I thought, uh, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> my legs were weak, my knees were weak, my head was spinning, but I thought, wait, now this is like the first ride. I can't tap out now. So I didn't tell Nicole anything about it. We went on several other rides. And I felt worse and worse and worse until I found myself, I don't know what it's called, but it's the one that goes really high. You're like on this little swing chair and it's flinging you around like that. And I was praying so hard that I wouldn't lose my breakfast burrito right there. It, it, it was painful. Getting old, 
what once was fun, what once was enjoyable, is now painful and disorienting. I no longer had the stomach to ride roller coasters. What, what seemed easy before now was dark and, and difficult. And I bring this up because in the letter that Jude writes, there's a similar shift. There's a similar shift from what was joyful, what was exciting, uh, some, to something that was more difficult, something that was full of struggle and difficulty. If you have your bulletin there, the text is there for you. You'll notice there's a big chunk of Jude missing. But if you have your Bible, uh, Jude is the second to last text in the New Testament. It's right by the book of Revelation. Let me read these first couple verses again and talk through what this shift is. How is it that Jude went from something enjoyable to something that's a little more uh, difficult? Jude chapter 1 says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. Now, who is this Jude? Um, His name in Greek is Judas. There are some infamous, there's an infamous Judas in the New Testament. That's not this guy. Judas is the Greek form of his name. Judah, that might ring a bell from the Old Testament. Judah is the Hebrew form of this man's name. Jude is his nickname. Now, this Jude, that was a very common name in first century Palestine, but this Jude is a special Jude. He is special because his brother is Jesus. Jude comes from the family of Jesus. Jude is, in fact, one of the brothers of Jesus. And here in Jude 1, he says he's also brother of James, and that is the man who writes the letter of James. Both of those guys are uh, brothers of Jesus, and both of them wrote letters here that we have in the New Testament. What is interesting about what Jude says about himself, though, Jude is the brother of Jesus, but notice what he says. Look at verse 1. He doesn't say, hey, look at me. Listen to me. I'm the brother of Jesus. No, instead he says, I am a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Though Jude was a brother of Jesus, he saw Jesus as his Lord, not just his kin. Here in verse 3, we find out what is this shift? What, what, uh, what happened here? Jude was excited about writing a letter to this congregation. He wanted to write a letter about the salvation we share, about the sweet rescue of Jesus that we share together. But he had to put that letter on hold because he heard that the church had been infiltrated uh, with people who were teaching a different message. The counterfeit message posed a danger to the church, and Jude knew that these ordinary Christians were vulnerable and urgently needed help. In fact, it seems that the church that Jude writes to, they weren't even aware that there was danger. So Jude felt it necessary to appeal to them. Now is the time to contend. Now is the time to struggle for the faith. There's danger. We need to answer the call. In the letter, Jude is clear about the danger. The message about Jesus is threatened. So Christians must be courageous. They must contend for the faith. That's the title of my message. That's a summary of the book. Contend for the faith. The message of Jesus is threatened. Therefore, we must be courageous and contend for the faith. But Jude's audience, like us, was timid. They were in danger of wavering in their own faith. In fact, they didn't even know there was danger to be attentive to. 
So the first concern in contending for the faith is to pay attention, to be alert, to not be timid. Second, more than just knowing the truth about the threat, Jude instructs Christians to contend for the faith by doing four things, growing, submitting, praying, and and waiting. Now, those might not be the first four things we think about when we think about contending, struggling, or fighting for the faith. But ironically, Jude assures us that this is the gospel way of responding to danger. And and we'll talk about that in the second point. Finally, Jude reminds us that we cannot do this on our own. We can't contend in our own strength. We need God's love, power, and protection in order to stand firm for the faith. So those are my three points. If you're taking notes, there's some blank space in the bulletin there. First, the problem. Don't be timid. Know the danger. That's point number one. Point number two, what's the response? The response is, contend for the faith by growing, submitting, praying, and waiting. This I'm going to call the ironic strategy of standing firm. That's point number two. And then third and finally, the power to do it. How do we do this? God's power and protection is what we need to contend for the faith. So point number one, the problem. Don't be timid. uh, Know the danger. Remember, though Jude uh, wanted to write a joyful letter, about their common salvation, he rather had to write a hard letter warning them about the danger growing up in their church. So who are these people? What's the danger? If you have the text in front of you, look look it back at Jude 4. The verse 4 says, For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Master our master and Lord. Jude describes how some people had come in by stealth. They snuck in with a counterfeit message. Now, of course, their arrival wasn't secret. The church knew that these newcomers were there. What was obscure, though, is what kind of people they were. Their their presence was not secret, but their character and their intentions were hidden. Though not directly in the text, this makes me think that the church that Jude is writing to, they lacked some degree of discernment. They couldn't identify the problem, nor did they understand exactly what this new message was about. Perhaps this new teaching sounded exciting or fresh. It was relevant or perhaps freeing. But Jude's purpose in writing this letter is to unmask the danger that this group uh, poses to to the church and to show that they are following a counterfeit message. For Jude to do this, he had to make a careful argument about the threat, these intruders, these people who snuck in that they posed. First, what Jude does is he he makes some accusations, and we just read them in verse 4, and I'll go over those accusations. But later in the letter, the part of the letter that I haven't put in the bulletin, Jude continues to give evidence supporting those accusations. But first, I just want to look at those accusations. Why are these people so dangerous? What is so bad about these intruders? Look again at the end of verse 4. First, he says they've come in by stealth. That is, they've infiltrated the community from the outside. Now, let's be clear. being, Being from the outside, that's not the problem. That's not what makes them dangerous. Being new to a community or not being part of the original group does not make people suspicious. In fact, I'd want to say that our church the church that Jude writes to, or our church, 
we have to be open and welcoming to everyone, even those who are different from us, even people who are full of doubts or have skepticism. We actually need to have uh, an open welcome. Uh, strangers, just the fact that they're not from us, that's not the problem. So being new or from the outside is not the problem. Rather, I think the problem is this, the way the church engages with newcomers. Uh, Jude is revealing to this congregation that they hadn't had gospel discernment. They didn't have discernment when they were interacting with new people. The gospel welcome in our community should not be one that says, hey, God loves everyone exactly as they are. So everyone must stay exactly as they are, and they must do just what they want to do. Why? Because God is so full of love and generosity that God does not require people to change. That's not the kind of gospel welcome that we should have. Uh, I think it's the kind of gospel welcome that Jude's church had. Come, you don't need to change. God's love is so broad, your life doesn't need to look different. Instead, gospel welcome should look like this. When people come, we should say, look, come as you are and find a God who loves and cares for you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that in his power you can be rescued, you can be renewed, and your life can be transformed. That is gospel welcome. The church Jude writes to uh, was not offering this kind of gospel welcome. They were not paying attention. Second, Jude says here in verse 4 that the intruders were ungodly. Now, rather than teaching false doctrine, um, this is a moral charge. That is, the intruders would likely have no problem confessing that they're Christians or that they follow Jesus. But it's how they lived their lives that refuted that claim. Specifically, the intruders rejected the authority of God in their actions. Um, in verses 5 through 19, we learn that they reject the authority of Moses. They reject the authority of angels, the messengers of God. They reject the authority of the apostles. And finally, they reject the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Now, now here as an application, I want to say you don't have to be a heretic to be a rebel against God. In fact... Um, I wonder if good evangelical Christians who are very religious, we have our own way of rebelling and manipulating God. We, we, we have this uh, kind of agreement that we make with God. Well, God, if I read my Bible um, and if I commit my life to you, then you owe me a great marriage. Or God, if I sacrifice for you and I give these things to you, then... Then, then you owe me, God. You, you owe me an easy life or blessings or assurance. Do you hear what I'm saying? That is, like the intruders, a way of rebelling against God's authority. It's a way of manipulating God. A godly Christian might actually be ungodly in how they live. Okay, so Judah said, look, these intruders are dangerous. Why? Because they came in by stealth. Number two, they're ungodly. Three, a particular example of their ungodliness is that they turn the gr God's grace into sensuality. This means that they took advantage of grace and mercy. Rather than living transformed lives in response to grace, among other things, they sought to gratify their sexual desires. This is a cheap grace. They turn the message of the gospel into license, that they can do whatever they want. 
That's a profound misunderstanding of the gospel. Remember what Martin Luther argued in the Reformation. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. That is, we are saved by grace, not by anything that we do. But if we have truly understood and believed the gospel, it will change what we do and how we live. Believing the gospel means transformed life. And these people who came in, they were not bearing out a transformed life. The fourth and last thing that he says there in verse 4 is, finally, these intruders, they deny Jesus Christ as our only Lord and Master. Again, this is not a denial or a denouncing of Christ. It's not an outward um, denigrating the name of Jesus, but it's a way of living that undermines Jesus' lordship. It's a way of saying, yeah, I'll, I'll pray a prayer. I'll, I'll say something you know, good about Jesus, but my life is not submitted to his lordship. It's a cheap grace. Now, Jude goes on to substantiate these claims in verse 4. In verses 5 through 19, we don't have that, uh, nor do we have time to look through that part of the letter. But in that part of the letter, Jude provides evidence for these accusations. As a faithful teacher, Jude sketches, in verses 5 through 19, uh, Jude sketches the bigger picture within which these timid and confused Christians can understand where they are and what's going on. The map that Jude gives them is made up of the Old Testament, Jude's quoting the Old Testament, and the teachings of the apostles. Here Jude proves the danger of the intruder's wrong message by identifying these intruders with those dangerous people and groups that Israel had faced in the past. In fact, Jude says, hey, these intruders, they're like the wilderness generation. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're like Cain, Korah, Balaam. Basically, what Jude is saying is, church, wake up. This is not new. God's people in the past has faced dangers, both dangers from outside and dangers that have infiltrated from the inside. So don't be surprised. The church will face these dangers once again. But, but not only are Jude's readers clueless, they're also timid and afraid to confront this difficult situation. Rather than recognizing and confronting this danger, they have allowed the intruders to influence them. In fact, we read later in the letter that these believers are wavering. Uh, the intruders have come even to a communion moment, a communion meal, and has disrupted their faith. The underlying problem with Jude's audience is that they are afraid. Fear of losing status. Fear of confronting people uh, who need to be confronted. At the bottom, this fear is uh, likely to produce the spirit of people-pleasing. This, this, is, this is why they're timid. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. And that fear of man has proven to be a snare for this church. This fear of people is the opposite of the fear of God. Fear of people... Uh, or fear of confronting this danger means to do something motivated by the approval or reward from, from someone else. Jude's readers have failed to stand for the faith because they're timid. They're worried about saving face before the intruders. But the gospel, what does it do? The gospel removes a man-pleasing spirit in us. The, the drive to win approval from men. The gospel undoes that. In fact, the gospel replaces that spirit with the opposite, not needing to win or seek human approval for what you do. In other words, the gospel produces confident and fearless followers of Jesus, doing what is right without concern for the approval or good opinion from others. Jude is reminding his readers 
that they need to know and confront the danger of a false gospel. However, this is not an arrogant or prideful confrontation. In fact, Tim Keller notes, the gospel destroys pride because it tells us that we are lost, so lost that Jesus had to die for us. But the gospel also destroys fearfulness because it tells us that nothing we can do will ever exhaust God's love for us. This is a message Jude's audience needed to hear, that the gospel destroys pride. We all need Christ. But it also destroys fearfulness. We can contend for the gospel because we have been so loved by Jesus. Because we're loved by Jesus, we can and must clearly discern counterfeit gospels and confidently confront them without fear. Okay, so that's don't be fear, uh, don't be timid, uh, know the danger. Number two, what, what's the response? Now, uh, Jude tells us more about how to respond in this moment. Jude goes on to describe this kind of gospel response to this dangerous message in the Acts of the Intruders. Again, if you have the text, look at verse 20, verse 20 and 21. Jude says there, But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. It's important to note here that in verses 20 and 21, Jude is coming back to the main point of his letter, contend for the faith. How do we contend for the faith? These four phrases in verses 20 and 21 tell us this is how we contend for the faith. This is the strategy. First, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Uh, the you here is plural. It's, it's not you go off by yourself and read your Bible, but if I can be Texan about it, y'all. Uh, y'all build your all selves up. I know that's not grammatical, but y'all build your all y'all selves up in your most holy faith. Do this together. Christianity's a community, not an individual sport. Uh, but, but what does he mean by building yourselves up in your most holy faith? This, uh, the faith here is not our individual subjective faith, but the faith, uh, the, the faith that has been handed down by Jesus and the apostles to us, the message of the gospel. Here, we're supposed to build each other up, remind each other of this gospel, strengthen our faith uh, by building one another up, caring for one another. So the first thing we need to do to contend for the faith is to know the Christian faith well, to know the gospel well. And notice, he doesn't just say know the gospel, but he says grow or build yourselves up in this way. Both knowing the gospel and growing in it, living it out, letting it transform us. This is how we contend. Not by attacking our enemies, but by knowing the truth and letting the truth transform us. Not just individually, but transform our community. That's, that's the first thing he says. How do you contend for the faith? Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Second, Jude says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, warning Presbyterians, I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit for a couple minutes. Uh, and Presbyterians are usually the folks who don't clap, and we kind of raise our hands maybe like that, but we have the belt rule, can't raise your hands above the belt. I'm poking fun, okay. Um, but Jude is saying, look, to contend for the faith means we must pray in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Pray in the power Pray under the power, in the direction, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, in control of the Spirit. The Spirit is in control of us. That's how our prayers need to look. 
This Spirit-empowered prayer is when our words and our concerns are given to us by the Spirit, not us. There is a difference between prayer consumed by our own needs and our own concerns and our own desires. But now let me help say something. God is, wants to hear our desires, our concerns. God wants to hear our hearts. Yes, indeed. But sometimes our prayers can be totally consumed by just our desires, our needs, our felt needs. Praying in the power of the Holy Spirit is for the Spirit to control and guide our prayers. Where do we find peace? Where do we find relief from anxiety, a wideness of heart and compassion toward others? Well, it comes from the gradual loosening of our control and giving it over to the Holy Spirit. Spirit-guided prayer is essential to contend for the faith. Third, Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. To keep yourself in the love of God means to remain in God's love for you not your love for God. Does, does that make sense? There's two ways you could understand that phrase. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love that God has for you. Jude is not saying uh, you just need to keep on loving God in your own power. He's not throwing us back on our own best effort to love God. Rather, we must keep ourselves in the place where we are aware that God loves, cares for us. How do we do that? Um, here's where I'll mention the means of grace. Maybe some of you have heard that phrase before, the means of grace. Uh, these are the ways in which God's love freely flow to us. They rush in and comfort us. The means of grace are worship together, prayer, scripture, the sacraments. These are the conduits. These are the pipelines through which God conveys his love for us. Keep yourselves there in the love of God, in the love that God has for you. Don't forsake coming to church. Don't forsake the scripture. Don't forsake prayer. Not because going to church, praying, and reading your Bible saves you, but because going to church, reading the Bible, and prayer opens your heart and life to God's powerful presence and transforming grace. It's a means of transforming us. And Jude is saying, this is how you contend for the faith. Keep your heart and your mind open to God's influence. Let him pour his grace and transforming power on you. Fourth and finally, Jude says that we should wait expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might scratch your head and think, well, wait a second, why wait? Um, haven't Christians already received mercy? The New Testament is very clear that the one who confesses his sins and trusts in Jesus as the Son of God, that one receives mercy. The work of Christ on the cross is finished and available to anyone who believes, but the work of Christ in our lives is not finished. It keeps going. In fact, we are waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ, not because we haven't already received it, not because we haven't already uh, been blessed, or perhaps if you're a Christian here today, you've, you've uh, experienced salvation and transformation. But, but Jude is saying continue to wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ as it renews your life, as you are continually being transformed, and that when Jesus returns again, he will in fullness bring his mercy and renew all things once again. 
Those are the four things Jude says we need to do to contend for the faith. Notice Jude does not instruct his readers to confront or attack the intruders directly. I played football in high school. I know it's hard to imagine. I'm a little pipsqueak, but I want to fight. Give me some shoulder pads and a helmet. This is, this is not a satisfying strategy. He doesn't tell his audience to kick the intruders out of the community or even to argue with them. Right? I like to argue. I like to be right. That would be my strategy. Jude argues that his audience rather should grow in faith, submit to the Spirit, remain in God's love for them, and wait for the mercy of Christ. This is how we contend. This is how we fight the good fight. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith calls these things good works. Good works. Good works which, the confession goes on to say, are the fruits and evidence of a true and lively faith. When we do such good works, the confession says, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, and adorn the profession of the gospel, but they also stop the mouths of adversaries. That's a great line from the confession. I think they were reading Jude. How do you stop the mouths of adversaries? You open yourself up to God. You submit to the Spirit. You, you in community, build yourselves up in the faith. And you wait for Jesus' mercy. This is an ironic strategy to contend for the gospel. We're not called to conquer or destroy our enemies. Rather, the kingdom grows by winning our enemies over so that they become our friends. And that only happens by the grace and power that we see in the gospel. This is the best way to stand firm or resist the intruders. This is the gospel response to danger. Not being fearful or timid, but contending for the faith in these ways. Last point, finally, what's the power? How do we do this? I just talked about good works. How are we supposed to do these good works? How do we see growth in our lives? How do we submit more and more to the Spirit's direction? How do we remain in God's love for us? How do we wait faithfully for mercy? The good news of the gospel is that we are not left on our own to contend for the faith. We're not thrown back on our own best effort to do these good works. Notice how Jude opens and closes his letter. Again, if you can look at the text, I want you to look at verse 1 and then verse 24. Verse 1, again, Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to, I know the text says protect you, but I'm going to change it and say keep you. Uh, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand. Did you hear the word keep in the original language? These are two very similar words. Keep in verse 1, keep in verse 24. And, and if, if you're thinking back, in verse 21, we get the word keep as well. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Here's what I want you to see. At the very beginning of Jude, the verb is passive. You are kept for Jesus Christ. The verb in verse 24 is also passive, uh, kept, um, kept from stumbling, kept from stumbling. The passive voice in those two verbs lead us to understand God is the one who's doing the keeping. 
God keeps you for Jesus Christ. God keeps you from stumbling. But what's right in the middle? Keep yourselves. That's an active verb. This is a keep sandwich. You've got passive. I thought that was funny. I'm a, I'm, I'm a college professor, so nerdy things like that are funny to me. Whatever. Okay, so kept, kept, keep. Jude is telling us, you are not contending for the faith on your own. God himself is the one who powerfully keeps you. But the response to God's grace, the response to his keeping you, is for us to respond in his power and grace to keep ourselves in his love. There is a response to the gospel. There's a response to grace. Here's the conclusion. In, verses 20, in verse 24, there are two ways specifically that God keeps us. And this is what I want to have our attention on as we close. Look at verse 24. I'll read it again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. First thing here is that God keeps us from stumbling. Literally, the Greek text says he keeps us unstumbling, <laughs> kept unstumbling. The image is of someone walking along who might trip over, you know, whatever it is in front of him, but doesn't. It's like you're watching the movie and you see, oh, he's so clumsy. Oh, there, there, there's, there's a crack. Oh, oh, he didn't fall. Oh, whew. Though we are prone to fall, God keeps us completely from falling apart. Preaching on Jude 24, Charles Spurgeon concluded saying this, God has this power. He has power over all of our circumstances. He can so arrange the trials of your life that you shall never be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. He has power also over Satan so that when he desires to sift you as wheat, the Lord can keep him back. God will not allow him to overcome you. But best of all, God has power over our hearts. He can keep us alive with holy zeal. He can keep us so believing, so loving, so hoping, so watching, so fully obedient that we shall not stumble at his word or stumble at anything else. God is able to keep you from stumbling. What is there to fear? What is there to fear? If it's Christ who keeps you from stumbling, human beings, loss of position, God's going to take the good things away from you that you enjoy. What is there to fear? If God is promising, I will keep you from stumbling. I'm suggesting the gospel gives us no fear. We're fearless. But that's not all. There's more. Not only does he keep us unstumbling, but he goes on to say, he causes you to stand. He causes you to stand. But look at where you stand. Look at verse 24. He causes you to stand in the presence of his glory. Now that phrase is going to go by us really quick and we don't maybe understand what it means. This, sound, this phrase might not sound like much, but throughout all the Old Testament, no one was able to stand before God. No one saw God face to face. Even Moses, the great servant of God, was not allowed to see God, only his back as he passed by. No one stands before God and especially in God's glory because we are too broken. We are too sinful. We're far too gone. We're too dirty. We're completely unclean. In fact, if you are reading along in the community Bible reading that our church 
uh, participates in. This week we were reading through Ezekiel. Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11. And those chapters tell of how the glory of the Lord departed from the temple because Israel was wicked. But that's not all. There's even more. Jude says not only does he cause us to stand in the presence of his glory, but he goes on to say we stand there without blemish. Who can stand faultless before the glory of a holy God? There is only one man. There is only one Savior. There is only one rescuer and king who gets to stand before God unblemished and holy. That is the man, Jesus. He is the only one who has the right and the privilege to stand before God himself. Hebrews 10.12 uh, says, But when Christ had offered uh, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. But Jude is telling you and me that God makes you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish. You can stand where only Jesus gets to stand. Why? Because God has kept you. God has rescued you. God has made you unblemished. What joy there is in knowing how the gospel transforms us. We can only stand here because the gospel is true. So what is there to fear if he causes you to stand and makes you unblemished in God's presence? Why not be full of joy? Why not contend for this great gospel? Not because of our strength, not because we want to be proven right in the argument, but because we see this beautiful Jesus. Jude ends his letter by saying, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, authority before all time, now and forever. Jude is praising God because he sees what Christ has done for us. He's rescued us and made us so that we're unstumbling and that we stand before God without blemish. This is a faith worth contending for. This is the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you please stir our hearts as we think about this short letter? Lord, we confess that we live in a cultural moment when we are confused about the truth. That perhaps sometimes when we're confronted with or faced with these types of difficulties ourselves, we, we are timid and we don't respond. Lord, forgive us. Uh, but Lord, in the, midst, in the midst of a difficult culture that, that does not accept the, uh, the teaching of the gospel, Lord, help us. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus. Help us to see that you have so loved us, drawn us to yourself, and transformed us by your power that we have nothing to fear and that we can trust in this good word of the gospel that has come to us, so much so that we can contend. We can, by how we live our lives and by how we experience your grace, show to the world around us that this is such a great salvation. Lord, help us to feast on this gospel that you have given us. Help us to sing with hearts restored and that we weep no more because this gospel has so transformed us into your power. Father, let these words find home in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.